today we're looking at the very last parable um, of Jesus' sermon on, of parables in Matthew 13 about this thing called the kingdom of God. And the parable is called the parable of the dragnet. I just want to read that parable to you, for you, with you, and then we'll um, dive into it. And the parable reads like this, short, only three or four verses. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be, say it with me, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so let me just recap some things real quick for you. We've looked at eight to nine parables, and I, I want to tell you what all those parables mean real quick, and then I'm going to ask you to interpret this one, okay? So here's the first one. The first one is a parable of the sower. It's about the kingdom of God, specifically the message about the kingdom of God, and that it was going to be hard to be received. People are going to receive it not so well. Three out of four are not going to receive it, okay? The second parable is about the seed. We find that in Mark chapter 4, and it says that the seed will grow automatically, which means the kingdom of God is growing automatically. You don't have to worry about it. It's God's got it with no help from you, by the way. It's going to happen automatically. The second one is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And in this parable, the big idea is that the weed is going to grow up next to the wheat until the end of the age. Jesus is permitting the evil to live among us. And he also says the evil and the good, they look a lot alike. Wheat and weed are so similar, you can't just go pulling on them. you got to wait till the end. And then Jesus says, don't worry about it. At the end, I got this. I'm going to take care of it. I'll separate the good from the bad. Then we roll into the parable of the mustard seed. starts off small, but it's going to grow very, very big, and it's going to take over the whole world. It's going to take over the whole place, and it's going to have all these branches, and it's going to invite in birds and squirrels, the typical kinds of things you don't want in your garden. God is inviting in all kinds of riffraff into this kingdom. And he also says it's like yeast. It's a virus that gets inside of dough, and it just, just infects the whole thing. So this kingdom's going to start off small, but it's going to infect the whole world. Last parable, parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. We covered this last week. And again, the big idea is that this kingdom of God is valuable. God will give anything. He'll spare no expenses to make this kingdom happen. He bought the field so that he can put his kingdom in it and it's going to grow and it's all good news. So we've got message of the kingdom, hard to swallow. Um, kingdom is small, but don't you worry, it's going to grow big automatically. It's very, very valuable. And don't you worry about the bad guys. God will take care of them at the end. And now here's the last parable. So how do we interpret this one? So I want you to tell me, what do you think the big idea or the main idea or the big point of this parable is? And try to remember all the other parables, okay? While you as a table to d discuss, what do you think this parable is all about? Just give me like one word, two word, big idea. What is the whole thing about, okay? We know it's about the kingdom of God. Right, And what's interesting is that all the things that Jesus has said so far about the kingdom of God have been about a seed in a field, right? All of them have been a seed planted in a field or even a treasure buried, you know, the kingdom of God buried in the field. And then he kind of pivots on that to say, oh, or like a sea uh, oyster that has a pearl, right? Or pearls. Oh, so now we've shifted from the field. Maybe he pivoted there to the ocean. I don't know what was on Jesus' mind, but he switched from the hidden treasure in the field to a pearl in an ocean, and then from there, he says, oh, you know what? Or better yet, it's like a, it's like a net. 
pulling in all kinds of animals and fish out of the sea. Hey, if you want to talk about the sea, let's just go ahead and go all the way and talk about all the variety of animals in the sea. That's where I think Jesus is going with this. I think the big idea is that the kingdom of God is going to be filled with diversity and variety. All kinds is the key word, I think, in the text. It will be filled with all kinds. And if you think about the ocean, I can't think of a single illustration better than the ocean when it comes to diversity. You agree with me on that? I mean, we don't even know half the species in the ocean right now. There's so many from a big mouth bass or large mouth bass to an octopus, you know, or from a cuttlefish to a, the majesty of a whale shark. Isn't it amazing? Oh, so many jellyfish and goblin sharks and things under the deep that we have no idea what they are yet. I mean, blobfish, have you seen a blobfish or a glubfish? Blues and greens and yellows, and it's just so gorgeous under there, and we don't even get to see it, you know what I mean, without special tools to get down there and look at it for only a short period of time. So I think that the, the big idea of this parable is that the kingdom of God is small, it's going to grow big, it's going to invite birds, it's going to invite squirrels. In fact, it's going to invite so many people into it, it's going to be so diverse, so rich, teeming with all kinds of different lives and life forms, different kinds of people, red and yellow, black and white, right? They are precious in his sight. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Jesus very intentionally uses a word there for net, and it's the word dragnet, and I say intentionally because it's the only time in the Bible that the word dragnet is used. Um, the fishermen, you know, the disciples, they're all fishermen. They have nets, but they never have a dragnet. They have all kinds of cast nets or throw nets or different kinds of nets. Only Jesus uses this term, dragnet. And so let me tell you a little bit about a dragnet. Um, a dragnet is a net, obviously, that you drag. <laughs> so it's a big net. It has weights all along the bottom so that the net is forced onto the seafloor or the sand down there. And it has little floaties on the top, which forces the net above the water. So when you think about that, you've got a wall, you know, bottom, top on there. And what would happen is you would cast this thing out. Um, what would typically happen, sometimes these dragnets can be a half a mile long, actually. And so they'd put it on the back of their boat, perhaps, and row out there about a quarter of a mile or so. And then while this net is dropping out and it gets tight, and then as the net would drop out, turn their, make a big U-turn on their boat like this and come all the way around back to the shore and then have all the other fishermen helping pull and drag this net. So as you can see, it's dragging in. Everything, everything's going to get caught up. Whatever's in that sea right then and there is going to get caught into this net. So it's a very specific thing. Everything is going to get caught, okay? Nothing's going to escape this net. By the way, the word dragnet is also, oh, it's a word in the dictionary, for policing. It's a policing term. Um, dragnet, in Wikipedia, the, the, the internet says, the dragnet is any system of coordinated measures for apprehending criminals or suspects. So think of a dragnet, including road barricades, traffic stops, widespread DNA tests, and general increased police alertness, the term derives from a fishing technique of dragging a fishing net across the bottom of the sea. So sometimes police do this, they just kind of go out there and just get everybody, and we're going to catch, catch, our, um, catch our man. You probably can't help but think of the TV show called Dragnet by that name. Some of you are old enough to have watched all 10 different kinds of dragnets there were, right? There was, it started off in 1947 as a radio program. Then in 1950s, it was a television program. 
60s, another television program with the different actors. 60s, 70s, again, a different one. 80s, they made a film about it. They even tried to resurrect it just a few years ago, and it didn't. It was called Dragnet LA. But it's a fitting term. It's a fitting term when you think about it. This dragnet is going out indiscriminately, pulling everyone in. Everyone's a suspect. But here's what I think is fascinating. When a dragnet goes out and pulls in these animals, it's not just pulling in fish. It's pulling in all kinds of other things. Boots, cans, tires, cans, right? All kinds of things are getting pulled into this. So it's not just fish. It's, it's Catholic, right? It's pertaining to the whole. Everything God is pulling out of this sea. Uh, now you might be thinking, but doesn't he say fish? Well, in your Bible, he does. The kingdom of heaven is a net that was thrown into the sea, and it gathered fish of every kind. And in fact, most translations include the word fish, but in the original Greek, there's no word fish. There's no pescus, which is the, fit, the word for fish, I think, in Greek. It's not there. We have to apply it. It makes sense, right? They're in a sea. Surely it's fish he's talking about. But it's not there. It actually just says the word pantas, which just means all. And so it really should literally be translated. The kingdom of heaven is like a net, dragnet, that was thrown into the sea and gathered of every kind. All kinds of stuff was pulled out of there. It reminds me of another beautiful statement that Jesus says, very similar. He says, and I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And again, that word people isn't in the original manuscript. It actually just says, will draw all to myself. Pontas. In fact, some early manuscript says ponton, which is translated all things to myself. Not people. We just install that for you know, easy readability. But it's not actually in there. Why is that such a big deal? I don't know, but it, I think it's fascinating because there's other passages in Scripture that say similar things. For instance, in Colossians 1, Paul says that God, through Christ Jesus, is reconciling all things, ponton, to himself, all things. And then again, in Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things, ponton, new. And I find this fascinating. I don't know theologically where I'm going with it, but I think it's fascinating. Something demands our attention there. This thing called the kingdom of God, again, is not just about you and me, not just about people. God in his majesty is drawing all things to himself. And in this picture of the dragnet, he's throwing it out and pulling everything out of that ocean. God loves the world. But here's a quote from Robert Kapp. And if the kingdom works like a dragnet, gathering every kind, the church as the sacrament or the picture of the kingdom, should avoid the temptation to act like a sports fisherman who is interested only in speckled trout and hand-tied flies. In particular, it should not get itself into the habit of rejecting as junk the human counterparts of old boots, bottles, and beer cans. <laughs> we discussed this quote at our community group, had a great discussion. Um, so I'm not going to discuss it a whole lot in this setting, because you should have been at community group, um, but, but it's about um, the church. Raise your hand if you'd agree with me. We tend to focus on a narrow group of people. We, I'm not saying that our, our missional efforts are on those people, but we all kind of look alike, don't we? If you don't believe me, just look around. I think it would be good for the church to step back a little bit and consider what Capen says here. We kind of treat the church as this place for speckled trout only, and we reject center types right? We, re we reject the rough around the edges types, and we shouldn't. If we want to go with the idea of variety and fish, we, we in St. Louis probably could think a little bit about um, diversity in our churches. Amen, Charles? Amen. I mean, you could look around, St. Louis especially, e even our own church. We have nothing to boast about. We need more diversity in the church, do we not? 
If, if the kingdom of God is about variety, then I would say the church today doesn't reflect that so well. We have a long way to go. But I don't want to spend so much time there because we spend a lot of time there in our MCs. What I want to say is this. I don't know about you, but I don't so much feel like a speckled trout. <laughs> I mean, if, if the church and the kingdom receives the speckled trout, I kind of probably line myself more with the, the beer can. <laughs> or actually, if I was really honest, I would say I'm a, a bald tire in the ocean with a bunch of netting and fishing line and, and hooks all wrapped up in there, and then there's more than one beer can stuck inside. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that would probably be me. So here's what I'm trying to say. I'm so glad that Jesus is using this analogy of a dragnet, because if it wasn't for a dragnet, I don't think I'd be in. I don't think you'd be in. I don't think we'd be in. The very fact that this thing goes out indiscriminately pulling everything out of the ocean is good. Amen? Someone say amen, because we're, we're in. So here's my good news for you. If you feel like a rusty can or an old pair of boots, be encouraged. Because the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, and it literally drags in everything. So it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or what you haven't done. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, will draw all to me. So Jesus is drawing you. That's right. You, even, even you. Capon goes on in that quote to say, everybody, even the worst stinker on earth, is somebody from whom Christ died. And therefore, sinners are the church's business, for God's sake, literally. Sinners are the ones we're after. As, as, a, as a sacrament or as a picture of the kingdom, we are supposed to be throwing out a dragnet and just pulling anyone we can. What? You've been divorced 10 times? You're, doesn't matter. Come on in. Moving on. When it's all full, Jesus says, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. And here's where we start to get a little shaken in our boots, okay? Don't we? Wait a minute. He's, wait, 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 wait. You just said it was a dragnet pulling in everything and everybody. And I was all excited about that, but now you're talking about judgment. And I don't like that. I don't want to be judged. Well, why not? Because I don't like being judged. <laughs> why not? Because <laughs> I'm probably not going to make it. Well, let's talk about that for a second. You're probably not going to make it. So Jesus gives us two categories, good and bad. And what makes one thing good and the other thing bad? And what you and I typically think and why we get shaky in our boots is we start to think that good means morally good and bad means morally bad. But can I just tell you, if that's what it means, then we're all going into the trash pit, okay? Because the Bible has done already said that none of us are good, no, not one, and that all of our sin is like filthy or all of our goodness is like filthy rags and we are all sinners and we've all fallen short, therefore we don't make the grade, we're going into the trash pile. But this scares us, especially when we read the last part about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So let me, let me show you something interesting. Um, the word that Jesus uses for good is the word kalos in Greek, literally translated beautiful, fine, or fair. Not morally, right? We don't, it's not a moral word. It's not he's good morally. It's just that he's good. He's, he's fine. He's fair. It's, it's more aesthetic to the eye, okay? And agathos is the word Jesus could have used, which is morally, ethically good. But Jesus didn't use that word. He used kalos. So, so what's the big idea? The angel, well, the fishermen in the beginning of this parable are separating the fish from good to bad. And how do we know who's good and who's bad? Well, we don't. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Whatever God wants, God keeps. Whatever he doesn't want, he throws away. And you can think just in terms of fish if you want, but I'm still also going to be thinking in terms of things. Maybe God says, I like this bucket. I'm going to keep this bucket. 
What is it that makes it good? It depends on what God's looking for, right? If he's looking for big fish, then I'm getting in, <laughs> right? If he's looking for big, healthy fish with a lot of meat, I think I'm going to make it. If he's looking for interesting, unique, pretty fish, well, I'm, I may not be pretty, but I'm pretty funny. Sometimes I can be pretty cute. Sometimes. Sometimes I can be pretty something, right? Sometimes I can be pretty something. So maybe if it's prettiness, then maybe I could make it. If it's fitness, if it's uniqueness, if it's alive versus dead, if it's edible versus unedible, I don't know. We don't know. We don't. He doesn't say, right? It's just good. It's good. That's, I like it. That's what, that's what kalos means. We use the word good like that all the time. Jesus did too. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And we don't naturally think that meant he was the ethical shepherd, right? We, we, we think that means he was a good guy. He was nice. He was fair. He loved his sheep. I'm a good shepherd. My sheep love me and they know my voice. That's what it means. I'm good to my sheep. I love them. doesn't mean he's ethical and he does everything correctly. We, we use the word good, good like that all the time, right? If I ask you, um, how'd you like the movie or how'd you like that book? You'd say, it was good. Or uh, how was that pasta you had the other day at the Olive Garden? It was good. Or how many times when people ask you how you're doing, your knee-jerk response is, I'm good. Hey, can I get you anything? No, I'm good, right? We, we use this all the time. And no time of those do you think ethically. Hey, can I get you something? No, I'm ethical. <laughs> right? We wouldn't do that. Hey, hey, how was, that, how was that pasta you had? Oh, it was ethically done. well done. It was a green pasta, you know what I mean? It was green. Notice I did the Italian green thing? I don't know. That, that happened naturally. I didn't even mean to. So that's the way we use the word good. It's good. It's good. Jesus does the same thing with the word bad, though. With the word bad, he uses the word in Greek, esapros, which means rotten, putrid, useless. Oh, that says something different than what I thought, doesn't it? He could have used the word kakos, which is the opposite of kalos, which would just mean not good, but bad. How's your pasta? It was bad. <laughs> All right, tasted gross. I didn't like it. How's that movie? Bad. It had no ending. What's the word for ethically bad? It's the word paneros, which means, not. don't think of the bread company, um, <coughs> poneros, which means evil or wicked. That's the evil and the wicked. So, so what, what, am I, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that it's not about how good you are or how bad you are that makes you in the in bucket or in the out bucket. It's not. It's about whether or not God the Father or Christ the King or his angels, whatever you want to use in this parable, sees you as good enough, usable, fitting, uh, or not good enough, unusable, unfitting. The fish are not separated by their moral history. Never do you see a conversation about whether or not they were pure fish or evil ones. You, don't, you wouldn't think of fish that way, right? This was an evil fish. <laughs> <coughs> this was a morally good fish. They are simply separated by whether or not the fishermen found them good or rotten. So, so, so here's a quote from Capon. The criterion is not the innate goodness or badness of the fish themselves, but their acceptability to the fishermen. It is their utility or their beauty, in short. They're being found kala or good in the eyes of the beholder. That lands them in the safe bucket. And it is the judgment of sapra or evil or rotten. I'm not evil, I'm sorry. Rotten, ugly, icky, crummy, ugh that gets them thrown away onto the beach. But note well, listen to this, that nobody goes to hell because he had a rotten track record in the world any more than anyone goes to heaven because he had a good one. Okay, so let me be honest with you. If I know some of you, because most of you are pretty smart, most of you are really smart, 
you might be thinking this in your head. It sure seems like you're softening this thing. Raise your hand if you're thinking that. None of you? All right, be honest, yeah. Sure seems like you're softening it, Mike, because if you read the parable as a whole, it's not soft. It's not funny. It's hard. It's a hard one to swallow. So why have you been there doing that, Michael? Well, okay, let me just be honest with you. Let me, let me put my cards on the table. Um, let, let me first explain to you why the smart people would think that. Um, because let's go on to the rest of the verse. So it will be at the end of the age, Jesus says, the angels will come out, out, out and separate the evil. Wait, that's not Kakos or uh, Sapros. That's Paneros, right? From the righteous. Oh, that's not Kalos. That's, you know, okay, now we're using moral words, morality words, right? And throw them into the fiery furnace in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds like you've been softening this text, Mike. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. I have for two reasons. One, because that's what the text does say. The first half of it is softer. Um, Kalos and Sapros, not wicked and evil. And the second, the second part is a little harder, much harder. <laughs> but the other reason why I do it, and the more important reason why, is because I have to. I have to over-soften it because you and I are too addicted to the harder version of it. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. So let me explain. Um, it's far too easy, far too easy for us to read this parable and parables like this one and conclude in the way we always conclude, which is, you better watch out. You better be nice because he's making a list and he's checking it twice and he's going to find out who's naughty or nice, right? It's far too easy for us to read this parable and think, you better try harder, do better, be gooder. Come on. You're not good enough. So let me be honest about what Jesus says in this parable. He changes the, the, the words, and he doesn't say just good and bad, but now he says wicked, evil, paneros, and righteous, the diakonos, that's us, we're the righteous ones. So it does very much sound like uh, judgment, doesn't it? There is a judgment. In the end, and the last day when the kingdom comes, Jesus is over and over again tells us there is a judgment whether you want there to be or not. And he is going to judge, and he's going to separate the wheat from the weeds and the righteous from the wicked. But notice that there's no discussion as to how the fish swam when they were still alive on the earth or in the water. Were they good swimmers or bad swimmers? No debate over whether or not they were naughty or nice. <laughs> no list that the angels were checking once or twice. <laughs> no, it's actually the very simple process of separation. The one is good, this one is yuck, this one is wheat, this one is weeds. These ones are righteous ones, and these ones are wicked ones. It's very simple, very easy, very clear. It's not, let's look at their history, let's check their cookies. You know what I mean? It's good or bad, righteous or evil. The righteous ones are these, and it's obvious. It only takes one look. So let me ask you this question then. What makes a good fish righteous and a bad fish wicked? The answer to that question is, Chris gave it earlier, it's Jesus. It's the righteousness of Christ. And so here's the question. How did these righteous ones come to be righteous? And the answer is by the free gift of Jesus' righteousness. That's how. He gave it to them. Now you're my righteous ones. And these are the wicked ones but because they didn't get it. These are the righteous ones. But wait a minute. So how did they get it? Who gets it? Who is it offered to? That's the next question. To whom was that free gift offered? And the answer is, unless you believe in double predestination, um, every human being who ever lived. What's double predestination? That God predestined those who would be saved and he predestined those who would be damned. That's double predestination. 
unless you believe in that, then you have to believe that Jesus, God, is offering this gift of freedom to everyone, every stinking person on the whole earth, which I do believe that. Because if we don't believe that, then we have to naturally say that God's or Christ's death on the cross wasn't big enough or good enough for the whole world. I think it was. Next question, do you actually mean that there's nobody at the last judgment who hasn't been given the righteousness of Christ? And his answer is yes. That's exactly what I mean. It's holistic. Every stinking fish in the sea, every bucket and boot is being dragged out of death. Everyone is being resurrected from the dead, and they're all being given God's righteousness. Sounds like universalism? Maybe, but not yet. Let me finish. There is a judgment. (laughs) I'm not Rob Bell. That's exactly what I mean. So here's the next question you might ask. Well, then how come there are then there those who are judged wicked or Paneros? And the answer, I like this answer a lot. The answer is this. Because even though they got his righteousness, they've got, it's theirs. They have it. They're decided they don't like it. They can't stand the thought of not being accepted on their very own personal merit. I like this answer a lot, and I believe it. Everyone's being pulled in. Jesus has given them all their right, his righteousness. But then there are some like, no, 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 look at me. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, you know, you should like me. And God's saying, no, 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 you're missing the point. I'm giving it to you, just receive it. And those who don't receive it are the ones who are going to hell. So where do you get that idea from? Why do you think that? Well, I get the idea from another parable Jesus tells in the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to cover it after Christmas, but let me just, just paraphrase it now for you. Of the wedding banquet of the son. Do you remember it? Jesus says there once was a king. He had a son. He's throwing a wedding banquet for him. So he invited these people in. I went to one guy, said, come in. He says, no, 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 I'm busy. I just bought a field. I need to go check on it. I just got married. We need to go have a party. So then Jesus says, what? Are you kidding me? I invited these people in and they're not coming. Okay, go out and get anyone you can. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. As many, hear that? As many as you can find. All. And these servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Inside this wedding feast, wedding party, is both good and bad. And then here's where the parable really starts to just mess you up. The king comes into the the party and came in to look into the guests. Yay, we got some guests that we pulled in. We dragged them in. They weren't worthy. We dragged them in. They're now here. That's the good news. That's the dragnet of the gospel. They're here. But then he looks around, and he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And so he said to that man, friend, notice the friendliness in that word friend, friend, uh, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And the very next verse says, so the king said, bind him by hand and feet and throw him into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wait a minute, they're in, he's in the party, he's in the wedding feast, the, thing, the place the virgins wanted to get into, you know, and here he is. But he's not, got a gar- he's not got the right clothes on, so he gets kicked out. What is this all about? It's about this. It's actually beautiful. ties in beautifully to this parable. The garment is Christ's righteousness. We put on Christ as his righteousness, and no one can be in the party who isn't dressed in the righteousness of Christ. No one is worthy to be in that party. No one is worthy to be in that party. In fact, the ones who are so-called worthy didn't come, and so now they're not in there. Only the ones who were there are the ones who got dragged there dragged by this net. We dragged you into our party, and the only reason why you're here is because I dragged you here. So the only thing that makes you acceptable is the fact that I made you acceptable by dragging you here and giving you my righteousness. But somehow, and I don't know how, this is Jesus' parable, not mine. Somehow, some guy got in there without wearing Jesus' righteousness. 
and the king notices it, right? Wait a minute, you're not wearing the righteousness of my son? How did you get in here? And I don't know what he was thinking. He's probably thinking, finally, someone notices who I am, right? Finally, someone's inviting me to the party because I am the party, right? I don't know what he was thinking, but he must have been thinking he got in there on his own merit. When he asks, how come you're not wearing the righteousness of Christ? He has nothing to say, and so he's thrown into the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the beautiful picture of this, I believe, is that we, we are made righteous by Christ's righteousness. And you and I know this to be true. There's nothing inside of us at all that makes us good or righteous. Listen to some other passages in the Scripture that say similar things. Galatians 3 says, For as many as of you who are baptized in Christ, that's going into the water and coming up with him, have you put on Christ. So again, these angels are looking at this, this net full of fish and saying, looks like Jesus, right? We're keeping it. Doesn't so much look like Jesus. We're not keeping it. Isaiah 61 says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. We just look like righteous, even though we're not. There are those, on Revelation, which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Just like the Passover, it is the blood that makes us righteous. Not whether or not you're a good swimmer, not whether or not you tried harder, not whether or not you done did good. You are made righteous because of Christ's death on the cross and his blood. So how do I conclude this? Well, unfortunately, I got to conclude it in two ways. The first way is I got to do a little house business before we conclude and go to communion. As a pastor, I always have to say what I'm not saying so that I don't get in trouble or so that I don't confuse you, okay? So what am I not saying? I'm not saying that there is no hell. I'm saying that, that there is. And that the ones who are there are there because they wanted to be there. They're there because they did not want Christ's righteousness. They're there because they were given it, they were offered it, but they refused it. I believe that to be true. The more and more and more I study Scripture, the more and more I, I like that answer the best. I'm also not saying that I don't believe in reform. Because <laughs> here's what always happens when you, when, you, when you preach like this. Someone thinks, oh, you think that we're just saved by grace, and so you might as well go on and kill people. <laughs> Which, I don't know why it always goes to killing people, but... <laughs> and what I want to say is this. The Bible has a lot to say about kalos and kakos. And he has a lot to say about Christians and their kalos and their kalkos. And so as Christians, we are supposed to be good. And I do believe that when you get saved by Jesus and his grace and you receive his garment of righteousness, that some of that righteousness is going to rub off on you and you're going to be good. But I also don't believe in total reform. You'll always be a sinner and you'll always mess up. And it always happened to you at two o'clock on a random Tuesday afternoon. Am I, am I right? And so you can't expect, we as the church can't expect the people to live up to our standards and say people have to try and look up, do this and don't do that. And if you do that, then you're not like us. And we're going to look down our nose at you. And we're not going to let you in because you're not a speckled trout. You are a boot, right? We cannot do that. We are all sinners, but there is reform. I'm not saying there's not reform, but I'm saying the moment you begin to count on that reform as your reason for being in the party is the moment when he's going to say, can't be in my party. Why? Because there's no one in this party who doesn't understand the free gift of grace that I've given them. Because that's why we're partying here. That's why we're here to worship. This is a party. Thank you, God, for your grace that you've given me. Thank you that you've bestowed it on me, that you've clothed me in righteousness, because I know I don't deserve it, and that's why I'm so thankful. Um, I was looking up a Bible verse just on the way here while I was driving. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It says this. 
Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to all those who believe. Interesting verse. Let me read it for you again. Scripture has locked up pantas, all things. Scripture has locked up all things under sin so that what was promised, being given by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to all those who believe. I do believe in reform. I do believe you're, you, should, you should try to be uh, more like Christ. But in the end, we're all murderers. We've all murdered the Son of glory. And that's why he has put everything under sin. Everything is under sin, even you. And even all you're trying hard to be good is all under sin, so that the only way you can break out of that being locked under sin is through faith, faith alone in the righteousness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you. Thank you. We can never thank you enough. We are here this evening to worship, to sing, to study your word, to break bread, to drink of the cup, to fellowship with this body of Christ is a way of saying thank you. That's what worship is. It's being thankful. It's paying worth to you for what you've done for us. It's paying worth to you for what you've done for this whole world. And so I pray, Lord, that as we break of this bread and drink of this cup and sing these songs of praise to you, that you would be pleased with our worship. I pray, Lord, that you would even move in our hearts that we might be pleased to worship and give you the worth that you deserve. And then I pray, Lord, that I would absolutely hate it if we leave and none of this changed us at all. If we came here and worshiped you and thanked you for the gift that you've given us of righteousness that we would go out these doors and just not tell those people the boots and the beer cans and the, the, the driftwood that's out there now that hasn't yet heard the good news, which is when Christ is lifted up, he will draw all things to himself and that he's drawing even them, our coworkers, our family members, our neighbors, who might not swim so well, he's drawing them to himself. And might you use us as instruments to share that good news this week. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.